At Freedom HealthWorks, we're focused on putting medical professionals back in control of their practices. Utilizing a structured, tailored approach to business, startup, and operations, it could make sense for you to work with our professional team to avoid expensive pitfalls and, more importantly, expedite your journey to success. As we all know, time is money. If you're involved in the practice of medicine and desire to practice free of headaches and constraints, reach out for a no-obligation consultative conversation. Call us today at 317-804-1203 or visit freedomhealthworks.com. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Healthcare Americana. I am your host, Christopher Habig, the CEO and co-founder of Freedom HealthWorks. Healthcare Americana is a podcast for the 99% of people who get care in America. We're not clinicians or policymakers. We're patients, we're caregivers, executives, advocates who are fed up with the status quo and we have a desire to change it. This podcast brings listeners backstage at innovative organizations with innovative individuals across America that are putting patients first by delivering exceptional care to anyone and everyone. Well, thanks for joining us here on this episode. One of the things that always comes up or usually comes up is in the course of membership-based healthcare, cash medicine, direct primary care, direct care, whatever you want to call it, is how does this work with the world that I know? Is it a complete 180 or are there certain aspects can I bring along to certain beloved patients that I've been caring for for a long time? And those are the people in questions that revolve around Medicare. And so today to help us through a very, in my mind, a very complicated issue, but probably simple in his mind, is Jim Eichen, founder and owner at Eichen Law Office and Lofty Learning, an online learning community for Medicare-compliant cash healthcare. Jim, welcome to Healthcare Americana. I am so glad that you are here to help us, I guess, dive into a very murky topic for many people. Chris, thank you for having me. And I, you say murky, I say clear as clean water. So we'll talk about this. And hopefully by the end of our conversation, it won't seem so murky. I think you're the first person I've ever talked to that described agency law as clear as <laughs> spring, spring fed water here. You've made a career out of, like I said, Medicare compliant cash healthcare. So many people in this kind of subset of the market who are looking at innovative cash models, obviously at Freedom HealthWorks, we're big on the membership based. And the question always comes up, well, what about Medicare? How do I deal with my Medicare patients? Are they going to spring for this? If I leave completely, if I stay in Medicare, am I opening myself up to blindsides at the stroke of a pen from agency law? Is there a solution that is best of both worlds? And the answer is, in my opinion, yes, there is. And, and let me just preface this by way of background, because I'm kind of a history buff. So I, I like looking at things from a historical perspective. So it's 1965. And the, the United States has decided that retired people don't have jobs with healthcare plans. And so we're going to create a healthcare system for what at the time was pretty close to mortality. You know, I believe the mortality rate in 1965 was somewhere between 65 and 70. So we create Medicare to basically fund the healthcare for 65 and older, 62 and a half in early Social Security, permanently disabled, any age and then expedited for people with renal failure or ALS. So there's Medicare. And it's 1965, and at that time, there are executive physical programs around the country that are typically called men's health clinics. And for cash, they are doing an executive annual robust examination. 
and following up on that annual executive physical all year. And these, these uh, practices are like Cleveland Clinic, Mayo Clinic, and all sorts of other executive health physical programs around the country. So in 1965, by federal statute, those practice models were rendered perfectly Medicare compliant. And by federal statute in the Social Security Act, a routine physician checkup is excluded from Medicare coverage permanently. This isn't like a trick. It's not, I doubt we're going to agree on amending the Social Security Act anytime soon. So Medicare does not cover routine physician checkups. So where am I going? We've known the answer to this, uh, Chris, since 1965. So cash practice models that frame themselves as a combination of periodic, monthly, annual, whatever, physicals uh, or exams and related communications are Medicare compliant. They do not violate Medicare. They have no problem with Medicare. Uh, they don't violate Medicare assignment. They can also bill plans for plan covered care if they want. So, so walk, us, walk us through kind of the high level of that, because I want to get in someone's mind who might be saying, well, this sounds like a lot of tricks and gimmicks. Aren't we just <laughs> walking around mines in the middle of this biggest government minefield out there? Isn't it, wouldn't it be better just to turn around and walk around the minefield and not even do business with the government? Well, for it to be a minefield, there'd have to be mines. And um, there, there, are very, there are very few mines, if any. So, um, so first of all, I just want people to understand that since 1965 forward, any practice that organizes itself as delivering routine exams and related communications is 100% Medicare compliant. There's no minefield. The minefield's in your mind if you think there's a minefield. There's no minefield. It's actually not one federal statute, but two federal statutes. So, and, and I reference the executive or men's health clinic model just so that you can mentally kind of picture it. Well, what does that look like? They do a robust exam and then they follow up on care all year. And they might treat all sorts of conditions, those executive health physical models. They might treat cardiovascular disease. They might treat prediabetes. They might treat anything and everything. And they are cash and they are lawful and they do not have to opt out of Medicare. So I look at Medicare risk a little bit like Shark Week. So I'm in San Diego. I'm a high school surf coach. I surf uh, pretty frequently. I'm also a boater. And I every year I see Shark Week hit. And let me tell you, all over the country, people are freaking out about shark attacks. This is what Medicare fear looks like to me. It, it looks like something that in your mind looks horrific but statistically never happens. So there's about five shark deaths a year worldwide, but you don't think that during shark week, you, you think a shark's gonna find you on a bus. There have been three OIG alerts on Medicare cash compliance since cash healthcare sort of hit the radar in 1999, three. Now contrast that with how many HIPAA violations have there been in, in the last 20 years? How many Medicare fraud cases have been prosecuted in the last 20 years? So. Your minefields are stark anti-kickback and HIPAA. Medicare is easy peasy. Now, a lot of the people that we, we've talked to from attorneys, that kind of thing, you know, they say, well, you can operate a concierge or a care practice, cash-based practice outside of Medicare, but don't you dare bill the patient directly for a Medicare-covered service. How does that play in? It's exactly correct. So what we do, I work on creating cash healthcare practices around the U.S., and I've been doing that for the last 12 years. And when I got involved in this, I took a really deep dive into trying to understand what is happening with cash healthcare in the US. And I will share with you all the deep and dark secrets, okay? So deep and dark secret number one, we just assume every patient in a panel is Medicare eligible. And we ask the question, 
Can we charge cash for services to these patients? And if so, what are the services we're charging cash for? So for practices that want to stay in Medicare, what they're typically charging cash for is one or more or a series of routine exams that are detached from medical condition or necessity and related communications in support of those exams. This kind of healthcare thinks of healthcare not as a commodity you dish out under a complicated plan contract, but instead it's really a connection. It's not based on need, it's based on achieving increased wellness and precondition prevention. And so when we enter into this different sort of mindset of what primary care can be, maybe what it should be, then we can see how a series of routine exams naturally fits into that thinking of that version of healthcare, which is perfectly lawful for cash payment. That said, you're right, you can't charge cash for what Medicare covers, that violates federal law. So what we do to create a Medicare compliant cash practice model is we charge cash for what Medicare doesn't cover. And that I think, Jim, is where a lot of the people who are active in direct care they throw up and say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. Now we're going back to agency law, like I brought up earlier and saying, hey, during the pandemic, we saw a lot of regulations change at the stroke of a pen. Is that something that I need to be up to date on constantly? Because what happens if they stroke the pen and they say, ooh, these preventive visits are now going to be covered under Medicare? I'm just using a general example. Right. Does the practice have to be like up to date constantly with that or have maybe a legal expert on their team letting them know updates come along the way? Those are all really good questions. Here's the way I answer it. So I've probably done well over a thousand or more practice models, more than a thousand over the last 12 years. The vast majority, not all of them, but the vast majority have been Medicare participatory cash for non-covered service models. And I will say this, the Social Security Act is not getting amended anytime soon. So what I try to explain to my clients is that routine physician checkups are going to remain safely outside of Medicare coverage, full stop. I don't see any will in DC to agree on what time of day it is, let alone changing the Social Security Act to remove that exception from Medicare coverage. Mm -hmm. And mind you, that exception was to enable a very high level of cash practice model that I suspect legislators wanted to make sure remain lawful which is the executive health kind of practice model. And in a sense, you could look at that as privilege. You could say that those were the, the high-level corporate executives of America who agreed back in 1965 that, okay, we'll go along with this Medicare idea, but man, you can't take away my executive health program that I pay cash for. So I think that's really safe. Now, to answer your question, Medicare is routinely changing and adopting new coverages for different kinds of communication services like care coordination, post-hospitalization within 48 hours connection, chronic care management, remote patient monitoring, the weekly check-in where we just talk for five or 10 minutes once a week. Those are all things that have been evolving over the last several years, and they will continue to evolve because Medicare, just like all of us know, that healthcare as a commodity doesn't work. We know that plan-dictated healthcare has inherent economic misalignments that lead to poor outcomes. So we know that that approach doesn't work. MedPAC knows that too. And so you can expect Medicare to continue to be shifting to per patient per month types of bundled reimbursement for all sorts of different kinds of communication. But if you have crafted your practice model as the sale of routine exams, 
maybe one annual and follow-ups. You do not have to check with me or anyone else every year to see if that's changed, because I guarantee you it hasn't. The Social Security Act has not been amended, and it won't be by the stroke of a pen. I appreciate you bringing up those good points there. You, and you brought up kind of the executive level physicals, um, kind of annual checkups. And, and what we're seeing in real life is that the cost of medical care and the cost of the membership-based healthcare is decreased. And so it's no longer just kind of the, the upper echelon of society going in there. And so building out just more accessible care. And I think that's where a lot of people get hung up is like, well, my prices are so rock bottom that I'm charging less than Medicare. And you charge less than Medicare reimburses and you're actively participating in Medicare, then they might not come after you, but there could be some issues along there. So I get where people have some misconceptions over the policies. And then obviously, like you said, Medicare, they're doing pilots in this world. Have you been active in following any of the pilots that uh, Medicare has been doing around? I watch them. I I watch what Medicare does. I read the MedPAC report every year and... (laughs) which is not easy reading. And I I do watch what their pilot programs are, but I have no concerns in this regard because the truth is is that as long as I take any healthcare professional, I find out what they really believe in is great healthcare and then craft that deliverable in the form of routine exam services detached from medical necessity, I know that the Social Security Act isn't being changed anytime soon. And so I don't care if Medicare does one annual wellness visit or five. I don't care if they expand chronic care management. I don't care if they pay more or less. I don't care what the requirements are. If my clients want to do CCM, they'll do it. I don't care. What I care about is that as long as I've created the practice model to be a routine exam service detached from medical necessity and all of the communication services I'm selling connect to those non-covered exams, I know I am Medicare compliant. I gotcha. I gotcha. Yeah, it's a fascinating thing. And we always look at it, and I want to get your opinion on this. From our standpoint, we look at it as being a part of Medicare is kind of a crutch to get your practice up to a level where you don't have to participate in any type of third-party payer programs. I know you have a different viewpoint on that, so we'd love to hear your opinions. Well, thank you for asking. So here's the way I look at it. I've been a lawyer for 35 years, and I've been in this private direct care space for about 12 years. Before I was in healthcare, I was a corporate and real estate attorney, and I worked with some pretty significant corporate and real estate and food companies and oil companies too, international oil companies. So I'm used to thinking of things, first of all, very agnostically. In other words, I don't come at it from a political perspective. I feel like that's a different language. I'm, I'm talking business. I'm not talking religion. I'm not talking about anything else. I'm not talking about tribal politics. So I look at this as an economic question. So the economic question is, here I've got this medical practice. How do I create a practice that is innovative, delivering what patients need to people, having patients investing some of their own resource into something they care about, you know, that power of commerce, you know, I I care about it because I'm invested in it. And I'm working directly with a healthcare professional who is accountable to me and as opposed to a third-party payer. Okay, so now my question is from a purely economic perspective, statistically and anecdotally, how do I ensure that practice is vibrant, alive, and functional for 20 years or more? I'm going to tell you that I think having some insurance revenue stream ensures the viability of that practice model. Now, it may only be five grand a month. It may only be 50 grand a year. 
It might be 80 grand a year. It might be 10 grand a year. But whether it's five grand, 10 grand, 50 grand, or 100 grand, everyone who's listening to this who's a small business owner knows that those numbers matter, right? Like if you end the year with an extra 10,000 and you own a small business, that matters. And it even matters more when it's 80 or 100. It really matters. So I look at this issue, Chris, from a purely agnostic and economic and commercial perspective. I'm a capitalist, okay? So as a capitalist, I ask myself, what do people want? They want high connection. They want to have a relationship with their healthcare professional. The healthcare professional needs to feel autonomous. They need to feel like they're not dictated to by plans. They need to feel they have the freedom to contract and help people the way they want to. And I want those two folks to get together and have a good, happy life, right? I want the physician to have a great practice, and I want the patients to have a great experience. I personally see no business reason to exclude plans from that conversation. It's just money, and that's how I look at it. So the plans aren't dictating my practice model. They're not telling me how much I make. I don't care if they downcode me. Who gives a damn? Pay me when you pay me what you pay me. But if it's an extra 20 to 80 grand a year, anyone who owns a small business knows that matters. So that's the way I look at it. Yeah. And our mission is to make a real impact on healthcare. And so right. I think right now in the world, the practice models that we operate in, I mean, there's so few, there's so few practices doing it. You know, a few thousand is not, is a drop in the absolute bucket. And so the easiest way to change habits is incremental, right? You have kind of an impulse, kind of a, a trigger, then you have an action and then you have a reward, but you don't change most people 180 degrees of where they are saying, hey, I've been doing this for the last 15 years of my, my career. I'm going to switch out and go this way completely. And so we've always been looking at, you know, what is that kind of incremental change and how do you install a membership-based practice? Is there middle ground? And so, you know, appreciate your insight on that. We're talking to Jim Eisen of the Eisen Law Office and Lofty Learning. Jim, you've mentioned kind of going into some of the other functions that you do professionally, talking with physician groups, talking to professional groups, your voice on physician burnout, and just kind of the wholesale need of innovation and and a different route in healthcare. So I know that's kind of a broad description of it, but in your own words, what really gets you jazzed up when you're in front of a group of physicians and are they looking downtrodden until about minute three of your presentation and all of a sudden eyeballs start picking up saying, Oh my God, there's a different way to go about doing this. I don't have to be miserable. Yes. So I I know what you're asking me and I will answer that question. So I have been a professional burnout speaker for about the last eight years. I was asked to do this because I was an unusually happy partner at a large San Diego law firm. (laughs) I'm not kidding. kidding. And, And they needed a speaker on mental competency for continuing legal education at a local law school. And so they said, you know, we know you do those talks around the country about private medicine and you speak to physician conferences on healthcare. Could you do a mental competency talk? And I said, oh, yeah, I'll do it. I'll just do what I did with private medicine. I'll research the heck out of it, try to crack the code, and then try to tell people something useful. So here's where I'm going with this. Every day I work with burned out healthcare professionals who get excited and empowered to create a practice model that they can own themselves, operate themselves, and design themselves to be completely free of plan control and plan design, which by the way, doesn't mean we have to not build them, but it means that they don't control us or own us and they don't dictate how we do what we do. And so 
it makes me super happy. So to your point, when I tell healthcare professionals that the first step in this journey is not to read a 68-page recipe, whether it's one tribe's recipe, another tribe's recipe, my recipe, your recipe, but no, 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 kick all that out, get rid of all of it. What do you believe in is good healthcare? Not me telling you how to do this, but you tell me what you want to do. That's the beginning of the dialogue. When they understand that they can actually be the author of their own version of a quote plan contract, the author of their own practice model, that they don't have to follow what other people do. They don't have to do what everyone tells them to do. They can actually do what they want to do. Yes, the lights go off, but then here's the deal. They also get nervous because they've been indoctrinated from med school forward that medicine is being told how to do it, when to do it, where to do it, and how to get paid for it. And that's a really hard habit to break. So when I let them know, for example, that they can deliver a routine exam service model, and then at any given time, decide if they want to build a plan for something that looks worth it and then do it, that's confusing. You know, they're like, whoa, 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 wait a second. When do I bill? How do I bill? And that's when I remind them, remember, you're not having to do a recipe anymore. So we're not doing recipe medicine. It's actually in your discretion. And you're the right person to make that decision, not a plan, not a hospital. And, and to your point, they get excited when they see that they can be in charge of their own life. And when I see them finish the formation project, open up the practice, have a completely full panel, making a good living and doing medicine the way they believe in, they are so grateful and happy that I wish I could can it, you know, and take a whiff of it every morning. I mean, honestly, their, their enthusiasm is off the chart. And my anecdotal economic observation to you is that I have to say, and I have to admit this, that I see this more often in the version of cash healthcare that I work with, in which plans are not excluded and plan revenues are possible. And I think that there's a number of reasons for that, and which we can go into more detail. But I do see the practice models that decide on a sort of axiomatic basis to be zero plan. Mm -hmm. I think they struggle. I mean, that's just at least my anecdotal observation. And, and that's the world we live in. And, and we focus really hard on the retail side of it. We right. don't put all our eggs in one basket, just getting small businesses and employers, because I think that's right. kind of a, a fool's errand. And, and, and that's a few years away, you know, on a wholesale shift over there. So uh, right. I would actually agree with you. A lot of practices out there that go pure direct care, they rely far too heavy on employer plans. And then you're just trading one master for the other. And well, let me put it this way. Let me put it I'm totally open to the whims of change year after year from a plan design standpoint. Well, well, here's, here's what I think happens. And I think this is very counterintuitive. So what, So follow me on this. So here's what I see happening. And I link this to my professional burnout talks, because in my talks, I talk a lot about cognitive distortions, those mental tricks that trick ourselves into thinking catastrophically, or black and white thinking, or filtering out the positive or filtering out the negative. These are very common human brain traps that we all struggle with on a daily basis. And one of the things that happens in private healthcare, it goes like this. So I'm a burned out healthcare professional, morally injured by being mistreated by plans for, let's say, 20 years. So I decide on an emotional level that what I really want to do is get as far away from plans as I can humanly accomplish. 
And I understand that and I empathize with that, right? I mean, we can understand this. It's just like if you put your hand on a hot stove, it hurts. And the Mark Twain famous quote is that, you know, a cat will uh, get on a hot stove and never go back to a hot stove or a cold one either. Mm-hmm. And that Mark Twain saying really applies to this issue because what happens is the physicians experience a very hot stove, you know, plan based care can really drive them down. But then what happens is they won't touch a cold stove either. And by that, I mean, they become sort of emotionally incapable of conducting business with those folks because of the injury, the PTSD of it, or the burnout of it, however you want to put it. And the way I see it that's very interesting is that then these professionals have this tendency to recreate planned medicine. And what do I mean by that? They create complicated cash menus. Mm-hmm. But we know Americans will defer care to avoid cash going out of pocket or for inconvenience. So why do we think that a complicated cash menu is going to create a different result than the plan menu that does kind of the same thing with out-of-network and deductibles and co-payments? Same, same. The definition of insanity is to do the same thing and think a different result will happen. So here's what we know about healthcare, Chris. We know that Americans will work their tail off. They will not go see a doctor until they can't go on vacation or go to work. And we know that by then it's kind of late. We know that what they're doing is they're conserving their cash because in the U.S. healthcare system, when am I going to see my primary care doctor? Four weeks, three weeks, five weeks? And then what's going to happen is if it's bad, I'm going to be told to go to the ER. Well, what's my bill when I go to the ER? $100, $1,000, $10,000? There's no price transparency. There's no good business here. I don't know what I'm getting into. So what am I going to do as an American? I am going to defer care for the inconvenience in cash until I'm ready to drop. And by now, I've gone from pre-type 2 diabetic to robust type 2 diabetes. I've gone from at risk of cardiovascular stroke to maybe I'm one of the 50% of people who have a heart attack and survive. But now my care has become complex and expensive. And this is why the US healthcare system is by far the most expensive in the world with actually much lower outcomes in terms of public health and other relatively similar countries. It's because we wait for the four-alarm fire, douse the four-alarm fire with the best fire trucks in the world, but we do nothing to clear the gas cans in the brush. We just sit there and watch it. And so what I'm suggesting with cash healthcare is that if we can defeat the Americans' tendency to use cash and inconvenience to defer care and get them on subscription models where they can easily connect to the professional as and when needed, and they're not thinking price or inconvenience, Now we can start driving up the American healthcare outcomes because now we've defeated a psychological aspect of our misalignment of U.S. healthcare. That's the way I look at it. I was very well said. I want to emphasize that we do have the best fire trucks in the world, like you just said. But I always like when people say that. It's like, well, we're spending all this money and and then really, really terrible outcomes. And I think you framed it very, very well. So I... I'm sitting here shaking my head like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's that's the beauty of you know bringing innovation because somebody might be listening to this and saying, well, Chris, why the hell are you interviewing Jim? He's competition to what you're doing at Freedom HealthWorks. And I'm kind of sitting here saying, Jim, I completely agree with you. You might have different ways of going about it, but that's the beauty of working with individuals like yourself that we recognize there's a problem and instead of just sitting on the sidelines and complaining about it and saying, oh, woe is me. There's nothing we can do. And then you know, wait until we get sick or a loved one gets sick and then just Oh, that sucked. You know, it was really terrible. I wish there was something we could do. We're attacking from different angles. Yeah. I, I want to emphasize that I, I don't think physicians as a whole understand the power that they have. 
you talk about burnout and moral injury, and it's interesting, you know, how did we let the best and brightest in our communities let this happen to them as professionals? They just sit back and just accept it. It's a language barrier, Chris. I mean, it's like, it's funny. I just met with a physician, a lovely physician and her um, significant other who is from Washington, but she's visiting San Diego. And we literally had this conversation at a, at a nearby restaurant talking about why don't physicians understand their power or what their options are. And honestly, from the minute they step into a med school, imagine that you can never be wrong. Imagine that you can never admit error. Imagine that you can't do anything that all 20 of your favorite colleagues don't agree with. It's, it's absolutely business defeating. You know, the educational process of healthcare is defeating of innovation, the mistakes that are natural to any sort of capitalism or any kind of market-based innovation. You know, and I know that in business, you have to make mistakes, you have to try different things, and that maybe your biggest failure is your biggest entry to success but that's not how healthcare professionals are trained. So they're trained so carefully to stay within collegial mindset that when you get to this place where they're burned out and they're ready to make a change, they're not speaking this language yet. They know that there's a problem, but they don't really know this language of innovation, business, trying new things, um, doing something no one else thinks is gonna work, but trying it anyway. Or, or trying a different approach to cash healthcare, even if it isn't exactly what we all believe in, but maybe it works better. You know, let's just see. And, and that is foreign, actually foreign to the way we indoctrinate physicians. What do we do? We, we kick their tail and tell them to follow the 120-page Aetna contract, right? And so now we pull them out of that mess, but they're all now conversing in French and we're speaking German. And, and so it doesn't make any sense to them. It's like, whoa, 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 wait, 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 wait. Tell me how I'm supposed to do this. And I'm going, actually, I don't have to tell you how to do this. I'm just going to give you some compliance parameters. Why don't you do what you want? What do you want to do? And then so many of them come back and go, tell me how to do it. And I'm like, I don't want to tell you how to do it. I want you to tell me what you want to do based on good health care, not based on how much money you want to make not based on whether you're in and out of plan. I mean, I don't care about plans either, but, but what do you want to do? Let's just forget the plans. What do you want to do? And then let's design a practice that works. That's the way I look at it. There's a lot of choice, right? And we're choice. Choice. show there's choices. You don't have to just sign up with the hospital and, no. and uh, be miserable no. <laughs> and go through life and load up on debt and boats and cars and houses and live paycheck to paycheck as a physician, like so many people are actually doing. It's uh, not just doctors, though. I want to make this really clear. When I was a young attorney and I was in a firm that got merged out and my partner was not liked, which meant that I did not have a job at the new law firm because he was out, therefore I'm out. I remember being a third-year lawyer trying to figure out what I was going to do. And I had clients. And so I thought maybe I should open my own practice. I'm a lawyer. I'm not a doctor. I got read the riot act. Like, I'm crazy. You think you're going to open your own practice and succeed? That's insane. So it's healthcare is not the only profession that gets mindsetted. Or, or look at organized labor, right? So organized labor does collective bargaining and has this huge contract with a giant company. And that giant company may have completely different values and principles than organized labor. But guess what? If that company disappears, so do all their health benefits. So what ends up happening? They're connected at the hip. 
They can't go anywhere. And do we teach organized labor how to do small business? No. Should we? Yeah, we really should. Because small business is a way to create more freedom, to create more prosperity. So you and I are on the same team when it comes to small business ownership, innovation, and encouraging healthcare professionals to strike out on their own. It's a very interesting parallel. And one wrinkle I want to throw in, you know, you talk about medical school and not, it's not a wrinkle, but it's an addition to that is there are so many smart physicians who want to go into family medicine and GP because they already have a very wide breadth of knowledge, maybe not as deep as somebody who's super subspecialist, but there's active medical schools out there who discourage that, say, we don't create primary care physicians at this medical school. And you're sitting there thinking, my God, like, so like you talked about the, the indoctrination from day one and yeah. And that's probably why a lot of people can't answer like what they want, because they've been told that you're too smart to be a primary care doctor. What the hell are you doing? That's for this other school down the road. They do primary care. Here we do neurosurgeons or whatever it is. And it's just like, man, it is so inherently deep. It's so deep. And, and by the way, that's all that's also very capitalistic, right? Because let's let's face it. If you're a med school that relies in part on donors, who do you want? million dollar a year surgeons or $200,000 a year family practice doctors. I mean, run the math. So, you know, I'm not defending them. I think it's kind of awful. But the reality is we all follow the dollar and money drives behavior. And, and, and that's the problem. Our healthcare system under reimburses primary care because we look at healthcare as a commodity. And we look at primary care as serving the lowest amount of commodity of all of those providers. When you go to a cardiologist, they slap a stent in, $1,200. You get a surgeon removing a big toe from a diabetic patient, $100,000. How much do you think a family doctor is paid to tell someone to eat right and live better? Zero dollars, maybe, maybe 14? Yeah, not much more than that. We, we joke, Jim, that you know there's no insurance billing code, there's no ICD code for actually healing somebody of a chronic condition. That you person know. is worthless if you're no longer diabetic. Oh, because we don't care if we're happy or healthy. We just want to fix broken workers and get them back on the farm. So that's why we- That's how we earn money, right? (laughs) Fix the broken robot, man. You know, like, come on, just fix broken worker, get broken worker back to factory. And we're not trying to make you feel better. We don't want you to have a better sex life. We don't want you to smile more often. We don't want your mood to be elevated. Come on, there's no codes for that. We just want you to work and you can't work if your shoulder's broken. So we got to fix it. I mean, that's literally the way it seems to me our system works. Interesting. Yeah. It, all about the dollar there. And we're missing in that, the relationship part of it that I, yeah. I believe a lot of this membership medicine gets into. And, and that's why people get into it in the first place. Jim, uh, last question for you. Give us a quick kind of summarization here. Look in your crystal ball. You're the emperor of the US healthcare system for a day. Probably take a little bit longer than a day. Wave the magic wand. What is the perfect healthcare system? I like the word industry. What does that look like? How do people interact with it? What do doctors do? How do hospitals play a role? You're going to regret asking me that question in a moment. Well, I said summarize, right? I said, you know, give us that synopsis. (laughs) I'm going to tell you the summary and you probably won't agree with me. If I wave my magic wand, I would make every American eligible for Medicare. I would keep Medicare a mostly free market private enterprise contracted out to for-profit administrators around the country. I'd keep every healthcare professional self-employed or employed in big units, and I would pay them through one roof instead of 20 umbrellas. I would just pick Medicare because all the private insurance underwrites it anyway. And if we did what I just said, 
and retained all of the qualification and all of the different underwriting aspects of it, we would have a 100% American system, not a giveaway, 80-20, with robust free market insurance underwriting and wrapping around it, and with a robust cash practice model that we already know is compliant. And the sun would come up the next day, and we wouldn't have a single American lacking healthcare. So that's my magic wand. I don't completely see eye to eye to that, but you know what? That's why I asked the question and get all kinds of opinions and, and all kinds of things out there. Because in my world, I'd probably go almost the opposite way, but it's going to be somewhere in the middle, right? Where it's not going to be on either side of it from an extreme standpoint. But that is one, Jim. I mean, that's that's one that I don't think I've uh, we've really dived into. So hopefully, well, not, that not gets- a single Democratic candidate knew enough about Medicare to say that. Because not a single Democratic candidate saw in Medicare. One of our problems, Chris, is that we take all of our legislators and we pull them out of our systems and, we, and they get their super duper cool system. So whether it's the executive, their health care program or Congress and you know the Senate and Congress people, they live in a rarefied air. You know, the average income in Virginia in that corridor is over a million dollars a year. My friend, this is not normal. Like that is not normal America. And so when these folks talk about our healthcare systems, they're not talking about something they have a connection with. They don't see it because they don't experience it. And yet we ask them to figure this out. They're the last people I would ask to figure it out. To me, the reason why I would pick Medicare as a central system is this. You're never going to do cash oncology, my friend. You're never going to do cash end of life. You're never going to do a cash hip replacement. That's just not practical. Americans don't have that much cash. And we don't. And so you're either going to have to come up with a funding system that is the essential equivalent of a centralized funding system or you come up with a centralized funding system. But running it like 50 little countries is ridiculous. Like Apple and Google couldn't have launched their products operating the way we do healthcare. It's insane. It's way too bureaucratic. It's way too split. It's way too siloed. It's an insane way. It's, there's no capitalist that would do healthcare the way the current system works. It's stupid. And so if you're going to get smart about this, you have to look at what's the company with the largest amount of cash in world history? Apple. Well, how would Apple do healthcare? Chris, we know how Apple would do healthcare. It'd be Apple. Okay. It wouldn't be Apple times 50. It wouldn't be apple, pear, apricot, peach, you know, grapefruit. It'd be Apple. And then it would still be free market. Apple's pretty free market, right? It's for profit. We can create for profit enterprises that also centralize and pass the cost savings to the consumer or the taxpayer. I don't know why we're so stupid about this, just to be blunt, but America is uniquely idiotic in the way it thinks about healthcare. If it just took a few steps back and thought about the way large corporate interests achieve scale and monetize something and take over the world with a product. Why don't we do that? That's capitalism 101. That's what I say. Yeah. And again, you know, common ground right there. I think too often people get caught up in this perception of nonprofit hospital systems, nonprofit healthcare are our friend. These are good for communities. And so many times they send a lot of people to bankruptcy. (laughs) And, you know, going back to your point about legislators and elected officials, it's always rules for thee, not for me, is kind of how I look at any government program of, they're living something else, and that's going to be it. Jim Eichen, Eichen Law Office, thanks so much for joining us here on Healthcare Americana. I think this was a very illuminating conversation, and that's what we want. We want somebody to get out there, have a listen, and say, you know what? 
There's a lot of great things here. Have conversations, learn, ask questions. That's what we're all about here. Jim, thank you for joining us here on this episode. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. And for anyone who has curiosity about either cash healthcare and the connection with burnout, I really encourage you to visit my loftylearning.com website. I have six white papers that are absolutely free in a course that's called White Paper Course. And so all you have to do is go to that website, pull down those white papers, and you can take a look at what I'm talking about. My work has been peer-reviewed by top healthcare attorneys. So it's, it's credible, interesting information that hopefully you find useful. That's going to be it for this episode of Healthcare Americana. If you haven't yet, be sure to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform. Check us out online at healthcareamericana.com. Catch previous episodes, subscribe to our mailing list, check out our awesome online store. Once again, I am your host, Christopher Habig. Thanks for listening. Check out healthcareamericana.com to hear all our episodes, visit the shop, and learn more about the podcast. Healthcare Americana is produced by Taylor Scott and iPodcast Pro and managed by Melissa Turpin. Healthcare Americana is brought to you by Freedom HealthWorks and Freedom Doc. If you've been struggling to get the care you need and the access you want, it's time to join your local Freedom Doc. Visit freedomdoc.care to find the practice location nearest you. Whether you're a patient, employer, or physician, the Free Market Medical Association can facilitate and assist you in your free market healthcare journey. The foundation of our association is built upon three pillars, price, value, and equality, with complete transparency in everything we do. Our goal is simple, match willing buyers with willing sellers of valuable healthcare services. Join us and help accelerate the growth of the free market healthcare revolution. For more information on the Free Market Medical Association, visit fmma.org. Hi again, everyone. This is Chris. At Healthcare Americana, we're always on the lookout for great stories to tell in the healthcare industry. And we'd like to hear yours. Check out healthcareamericana.com and send us your ideas for episodes or if you'd like to be a guest. Thanks again for listening. Hope you enjoy it.